Hello, and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by Hybrid Links. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Translation Company Talk podcast. Today we will be discussing how to lead a language organization that is operating from multiple regions. To cover a geographically diverse management structure, I have invited Tia Dietrich, a CEO of Australian Headquarter Language Service and Language Technology Provider 2M Language Services. Tia Dietrich provides executive leadership to the 2M Management Board and its Australian and international business units, delivering innovative language solutions into 300 plus languages to the public sector, healthcare, resources and mining, defense and creative industries. Languages include also indigenous, Pacific Island and other low resource languages. A graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, Tia has extensive board experience. President and chair of the Australasian Association of Language Companies or AALC, Previous board director of GALA, fellow of AUSIT or OSET, Tia is one of Australia's industry leaders in the localization and international trade sector. On the board of the German-Australian Chamber of Industry and Commerce and the Australia-France Business Association, Tia works daily with global brands, assisting them to enter international markets successfully and manage their multilingual assets. Tia is a sought-after speaker and MC at industry conferences and international trade events and was recently featured in the Australian Financial Review. When not working, Tia can be found either on the ski slopes in Europe or riding the waves of the Pacific Ocean on her SUP board from her beach home in southeast Queensland. Welcome to the Translation Company Talk, Tia. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm so pleased to have you here today. After such a long time, we've been trying to coordinate this. Let me dive into the first question, Tia. How did you come into our industry, the localization and translation industry? Where did things start for you? Thanks, Salton. Let me start first by respectfully acknowledging the Kabi Kabi people, um, which are the traditional owners of the land where I'm talking to uh, to you today in Southeast Queensland and uh, pay my respect to elders past, present and future and their continuing connection to land, sea, language and culture. Right. Um, so where did things start for me? Um, really traditional. I went to the Johannes Gutenberg University Mainz in Germany to the to the faculty in Germersheim um, that many in our industry knows for applied linguistics. Um, and I studied um, there to become a translator and an interpreter um, with a specialization of international law. And then I came to Australia for the Olympic Games and the German-Australian Chamber of Industry and Commerce recruited me. And, uh, and I, moved, uh, I was involved in the Olympic Games in Sydney 2000. Um, I, was, um, I was then uh, for four years in the Kimberley region, uh, which is the remote northwestern part of Australia. And I was the director of an Aboriginal interpreter service uh, called, um, at that time, KISS, today um, Interpreting Western Australia. Um, and uh, it was the Aboriginal interpreter service we started. And, uh, and then I founded the company in Australia, which um, would have been a startup, but that word didn't exist back then. So um, there you go, quite a linear, um, uh, not by accident, like many of my other colleagues in the industry here. Very, very interesting. Now, Tia, it, it's been a long road, and I'm sure you've seen lots of things, perspectives. Please describe to me what has your experiences been like in this industry? Uh, what things did you enjoy? What things surprised you? And what things you would rather have things done differently? 
Well, let's take a couple of um, sort of key markets out. Maybe one, let's start with the City Olympics, which I just mentioned. Um, I was already, um, obviously, a big international sports event. I already had a little track record um, in in that international sporting um, event scene. Um, I had been um, an interpreter in 1993, okay, I'm disclosing my age here, um, in Sierra Nevada, in southern Spain. Uh, We had the World Cup for men. In alpine skiing in '94, we had the World Cup for women. Again, I was an interpreter there uh, for FIS, the International Ski Federation. Um, in '95, the World Championships uh, for alpine skiing were staged there. Again, we were there for um, FIS um, as the interpreters. Um, spectacularly, it was cancelled because in the after it had already started after the the opening ceremony because there was not enough snow. And they restaged it in um, in '96. Um, so again, so that was sort of my initiation into um, sports event as an interpreter. And from then, that really marked um, all the experience of my company in conference interpreting, up to, for example, even events like the G20, which was in Brisbane on our doorstep, um, and many other international events. Um, and now we've got the Olympics in Brisbane uh, in 2032. So um, obviously, I'm already involved with the task force, and it's a little bit of a full circle. Um, years later. So that was one thing, for example. Um, and um, then let's maybe take the Aboriginal interpreter service in the Kimberley. Um, this shaped the language offering, you know, for 2M, you know, um, uh, 2M Language Services, my company. As I had the relationship, so this is almost 20 years ago, right? And I was there for four right. years, you know, not three months, four years. And um, this is in one of the most remote areas in the world, the most inhospitable regions um, in the world. And um, and there I, um, from that time, I still have the relationship, the trust, the credibility, knowing the cultural sensitivities of the different um, indigenous language groups and culture groups, the, the complex kinship system, avoidance relationships, for example, what it means in interpreting uh, the different um, indigenous languages. So now here we are, you know, all these years later, and we're uh, Queensland governments, for example, sole provider of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages. Um, we have contracts with the New Zealand government. Um, obviously, there it's Maori, the Indigenous language there. Um, we have many Indigenous languages here. So, so again, something from there that has sort of, you know, even though Indigenous language is just mosaic of our offering, it is a complex one, and it's not just a language you add. Right. So it is really the elders from many of those groups who still know this is Tia's business. It's okay to work with them. This is how it works. So and then maybe um, the business starting starting that business myself in the back of my bedroom with a laptop um, and going through uh, the whole motion of growing the company, scaling the digital transformation, getting into international trade and and eventually the the international expansion of the company. Um, So, yeah, there's there's a lot in there in all these years. Wow. Now, uh, Tia, before I get into the topic of our conversation today, you are a jet setter. You travel between Europe and Australia all the time. How did this, how did you manage things with COVID? How did you stay in Australia all this time? Well, you know, Sultan, that was very easy, you know, because I couldn't, we were (laughs) not allowed to leave. I mean, it was the only democratic country in the world that actually are prohibited you know they're citizens if you had an australian passport which i have i have a few but one of them is australian yes yeah, so look i couldn't so you you manage uh and it uh, went how, really how well. did you how did you spend your time what did you do all this time in the past uh-huh. few years oh that's you know um that's uh you know that's interesting because actually COVID was um 
you know, very good for us. You know, we grew by over 210%, um, you know, at least. I mean, probably this financial year even more. Through technology, RSI, you know, Salton crisis is very good for communication sector. You know, so there was a lot to do. Health-related multilingual content demand exploded. But um, but also change in strategy, change in risk appetite. Uh, what did I do? We focused on tenders. Um, really, less traveling made me focus just very much. You're in your bubble, you're inward. And um, yeah, we just, we just responded really, really quickly to the explosion in demand. We pivoted like many in the industry. And we were really busy. And I also, I actually, I also went back to study. I did the Australian Institute of Company Directors course and graduated. Um, so I used my time very wisely. Congratulations. You've, you've achieved quite a bit. Now, Tia, uh, today um, I'm going to talk to you and ask you questions about leading and managing multi-regional language services companies. And 2M is obviously very active on that front because you manage uh, teams in different parts of the world. Talk to us about your organization and what does it do and how does it create value for its customers? 2M is a language technology and language service provider. So translation, localization into 350 plus languages. So the standard ones, but also we're specialists for rare and emerging languages, Pacific Island languages, African languages, um, those displaced communities um, in Asia, like um, Rohingya, Karen, Chinhaka, so that's in the translation localization front. Then there's interpreting your RSI, VRI on site. Third one is media localization and, um, and language technologies, the last one. So that's what we do. But um, your question, how does it create value? I would say we help our clients to engage, empower, and give equity to their customers, to their stakeholders. So really it's those three E's, engage, empower, equity. And they under, you know, they apply to everything. And this really underpins everything as well. Because if you if you do that, engage, empower, right? You drive sales, you know, you reduce hospital stays, you retain staff, for example, through the CEO's messaging, you know. Um, this is working with corporate comms, compliance, right? Reducing the risks. The translation interpreting services, they're really only the tools, Sultan. For example, in RSI, we see, um, you know, people have meetings and they didn't previously use interpreters. Because why? Well, they all speak English. Well, yes, they do, but it's not their first language. So actually, they were sitting in these meetings and didn't say anything. And meetings are very expensive. If you look at who is in the meeting room on a Teams, WebEx, you know, Zoom meeting, and what their hourly rates are for engineers, for, you know, the executives who are in that meeting, and then you walk out of and you think that was a waste of time because you didn't get the engagement you needed. You didn't get the ideas. So by applying and bringing the multilingual meetings, you know, and the RSI, for example, that remote simultaneous interpreting, even though everybody spoke English, engagement levels went up, right? The productivity increased. And that already expensive meeting, you know, finally had with a little investment of one hour RSI had a, had a large return. So you know, so again, it, it always, it doesn't matter if it is sales, if it is compliance, where you are at, the value you're adding is that your clients are able to engage and empower their stakeholders. 
So there is this debate in our industry that we are in the business of value transformation, not value creation. But you just prove that by making a difference in someone's life or in someone's business, we do create value. We just have to demonstrate that value to our customers. Look, absolutely. And it really, I mean, and I'm, I'm not, of course, not the only one saying this. We are not. This, you know, we're not selling this, you know, the translations. It is that. It's that value and it, it's different for every, you know, for it is project management, it is, it is HR, it is, um, you know, eliminating headaches. But, but it really, for me, for us, it's the three E's at 2M. You know, it's everything, you know, be it the patience of the culturally, linguistically diverse community that if that is, you know, your end stakeholder, um, is it, um, you know, uh, the, you know, your, your international target market because you're exporting. But if you don't, you know, if is it in the meeting? But if you're, you know, we if we can help our clients to engage and empower and ultimately give them that equity, then the client is successful and we all know what happens. If the client's successful, the client's happy, you know, and uh, and we'll come back for more. As an Australian language services company, 2M is very iconic and, and now it has a full international presence. Please talk to us about how you expanded the organization from the early days. You started it yourself, you mentioned with a laptop, and, and today it's an internationally renowned organization. What was the journey like? Yes, so the first years as a sole trader, which is a legal entity in Australia, before you incorporate the car company, it took quite, you know, many years. It was, um, it was only in 2012 uh, when I started the first overseas office. So 2012, Paris. The driver there was the mining resources sector. Australian mining companies very active in Africa in the mining sector. And that's why I chose Paris, because it was um, a lot easier to manage uh, language services in Africa from Paris because of the talent, because of the time zone. Um, Paris is still our um, location today for Europe. It is very central. You can fly to New York. You can go over to Germany, fly, you know, take the Eurostar to London. So it was uh, a very good location. So that was uh, 2012 was Paris. And then it took another five years. 2017 was Argentina. And 2018 was Manila. And then 2020 was Colombia. And then 2021, only last year during COVID, three offices, Perth, Auckland, and Santiago de Chile. So um, wow. yeah, so Paris was driven, as I said, to cater for our European clients and right. the Australian mining activities in Africa. So that makes sense, right? The Follow the Sun project management, that 24-7 offering, you know, that, that was the reason for some of the other offices. We were already the night shift for clients, for some of our clients in Europe. But then we started needing our own night shift as well, you know, if that makes sense. So, um, so Latin America is really like there's a real handover there, you know. I mean, they, we don't overlap at all with Australia, you know, with the time zone. And let's go back to the mining sector where we are very strong, as you can hear, um, and resources. There's a lot happening in Santiago. All the mining companies are there. Um, so that, that obviously Latin America is, in, is a very obvious um, expansion. So, uh, Tia, let's talk about structure. Now, with this type of growth comes complexity. Please explain to me, how do you see your organization structured? How do you define the core functions and support functions and all the different roles? Uh, do you distribute them uh, geographically? How, how do things work? Yeah, um, Sultan, that is uh, A, a good question, and B, <laughs> uh, and B, a huge um, undertaking. 
I would like to say before I even explain the structure, to in order to even define the core functions and the support functions, you have to really a you have to understand them, really understand them. You know, so so it's not just like you know, sort of you come from you know some some CEO comes across from another organization and just does something that that looks logical on uh, on paper. You need to understand them. Then you need to be very adaptable. Because believe it or not, our org chart changes, I mean, by every month, sometimes every week, right? Because why? Because we calibrate. So you have to be adaptable. You have to calibrate constantly, constantly. You know, that function, now you need that function there. Okay, you're hiring, but is that talent there? Where are you doing? You know, constantly calibrating, constantly determining and fine-tuning. Also, the company values with the team, only then. Only if you're really done and, you know, then you can plan and allocate the right resources. So then we clearly define the relationship with, um, obviously, our functions and the resources for that. Very importantly, we offer training and share our company direction with them. A very big one throughout those functions, which are, of course, people, we help manage the employee's career course. That's very, very big uh, within 2M that we look and empower all the employees and make sure they have a career. Why? Because, of course, you can only hold and retain talent if you give them a perspective, if you give them a career. And then we identify gaps fast. So, so all this is crucial and needs to be constantly done. So our org chart, as I said, changes all the time. And yes, there's the leadership team. Yes, there's a CEO. With me, there's a CFO, a CTO, a CEO, and then there's the heads of departments, right? Translation, interpreting, media localization, technologies, and our 2M Academy. So they have obviously all the heads, and then they have all their teams underneath. But then you've got the international offices, right? So that's when things become intertwined, because some in our international offices are support functions for the senior project manager's you know, in our Australian offices. But then they have another function because they're, they're in that time zone. So uh, so it's it's quite complex. And, uh, and, and on top of it, I say this because all this influences what the functions are. We create, a, we have a culture of empowerment and leadership, as I said before. So you're not a leader until you have not produced another leader, right? So we really... We really want to see in those functions that they're reporting to the project manager, you know, the project manager to the senior project manager, right? Because we want to, we want to teach having people reporting to you is no, not an easy task because you've got to look after them. You've got to motivate them. So all of these functions, uh, all of these deliberations I shared with you, they define and they determine, you know, the core function, the support functions rather than a static org chart we have to fill. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So from what I understand, basically, the structure evolves with the business demand, with, with how things uh, operationally need to need to happen. So I'm guessing with that type of complexity, um, well, the question is, how do you stay on top of things? How much data does your organization generate and how is it organized? Um, look, we're a data-driven organization. So for sure, we... we if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist, right? So we collect, in general, we collect and generate, a, you know, a fair amount of data. And um, and we try to maintain it structured so we can get intelligence out of it, you know? So there's always new opportunities and avenues to get more data. But the most important is finding how to leverage it, you know? 
you know, data, if you don't use it, is also not useful. So you got to be very disciplined on the structuring, you know, and with structured data comes potential for AI applications down the track. So it's always something we keep in mind when we gather data, right? On top of it, we work with the defense sector, you know, so data is heavily protected as well. So not only we've got all the data, you know, uh, we were just invited to the government's defense sector cybersecurity program, and we graduated from that. You need to be nominated by a European, um, well, by a defense prime. In our case, it was a European one. We're going through ISO 27100 uh, audit at the moment as well. So, um, yes, we structured, but then we have a very sophisticated information security management system. Obviously, we use SharePoint where we hold a lot of the data. But, um, yeah, it, it more is what I said in the beginning. We always look not only organizing and collecting the data, but always thinking of, you know, how useful, what, what can we use that for? Um, and can we down the track, if we have enough, can we create and build an AI application out of it? That's a, it's really an important deliberation. Tia, again, we're talking about uh, leadership here, um, leading and managing, you know, an organization like yours. It's, it's an undertaking. Let's talk about strategy. How do you define your organization's strategy uh, from top down and how often do you revise it? Um, every February, right? Um, we do a strategy. Um, I think this year it's actually going to be early, first week in, in, in March. And we do one mid-year. So we've got the, the yearly strategy early and then a mid-year one. And that's that's our, we always do them. We set the risk appetite and the course, right? Long gone is the five to 10 year plan, right? It's now one to two years, you know, even with three months and six months horizons, right? And that's where we also, we always look again at our, at the, you know, the famous why, how, what, your vision, your mission, and the strategic um, growth pillars, right? So um, in our case, they are um, people, right? Building the organizational capacity within 2M, you know, um, uh, attract the, the, the talent, right? Um, with domain expertise anyway. So it's the people without going too much detail. Then it's technology, right? Driving the innovation and supporting progress, you know, by investing in R&D, right? Um, and piloting um, all the technologies through our 2M lab, which is our R&D department. Number three of the growth pillar is processes, integration, your automation uh, sectors, you know, uh, where we're partnering with key clients, you know, that's the fourth. And the fifth one is growth services, right? There we define where the growth services, you know, and um, we also go through digital transformation. Are we truly digital? You know, I mean, people like to say that. What steps are still manual, right? And really, the most important thing is, is I would say the strategy on the fly, right? Our COO, Helena Rojas, and myself, we are on to that strategy on the fly all the time. We have to stay alert, nimble, correct the course. You know, that calibration as I mentioned earlier on, it's very important, right? Not everything you do and you said works out. And that's not a problem, but you need to know and recognize it and then calibrate it. And then, you know, you stay on the course. So, um, yeah, so, so it's really that strategy on the fly, which I would say um, is, uh, you know, is the big success factor here. So, uh, and, and you mentioned that you have a mid-year strategy meeting as well is that the time when you see how strategy is working out and how to tweak things or is that defining new action items that need to get attached to the strategy yes no it's not where we tweak we tweak um and that calibration i talked about 
It, that is constant. That is because um, we're doing the strategy on the fly, we're constantly in touch. The CTO, CEO, myself, and then, you know, other leaders. That mid-year is looking where we're at, right? We, we get the reports in, all the heads of departments, you know, and we can see we can see already the impact. I mentioned before, we also have a three-month and a six-month horizon. So the six months, we, we can really look back. But we've been already tweaking, you know, by the time by the time we come to the mid-year strategy. So that mid-year strategy probably consolidates and confirms, you know, that, that strategy on the fly we've been on about. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Tia, on a separate note, I admire your work across our industry, your involvement in Gala and how you show leadership in promoting our industry at large. It's, it's impressive. Tell me how much of your time is invested in that front and how have you measured the results of your engagements in terms of business? Oh, Gala, I like the sound of it always. Of course, big smile <laughs> to my face. I was on the Gala board for four years, right? And um, and I'm also still now the president and the chair of the Australasian Association of Language Companies, right? The AALC, right? Um, right. Obviously, the AALC is one of our sister organizations. I'm also on the NATI, which is our National Accreditation Authority for Translators and Interpreters, um, our, basically our sort of standards body, so to speak, in Australia on their regional advisory uh, committee and, and set for five years uh, on their technical reference advisory group. Uh, I sit on other boards in the international trade sector as well. Um, and yes, this does consume a lot of time. I would say about 35% of my time. At times, it has been even more. So the, re the rewards are really obvious, though. A powerful business network um, in, in the international trade and export sector, you know, that opens doors and creates opportunities for cross-sector collaboration. It stimulates your learn, right? And I mentioned the, um, the AICD, the Australian Institute of Company Directors course before, right? Where you learn to look at everything through the lens of a director, right? The steward of an right. organization, not, not, not the executive director as us CEOs, right? No, as a non-executive director. And in those boards, you know, in our industry, as well as the other boards, they give you this opportunity to hone your experience on a board of an organization, which also propels you then and gives you experience to go on other boards, right? And that's where you potentially, not everyone, but some of us as CEOs want to be. It's very interesting to have an NED, a non-executive director's career, right? And, and then sit on the boards of some other organizations, right? But even OSIT, coming back to our industry, um, the Australian Institute of Interpreters and Translators. I was the president in Queensland for many years. Um, I was the vice president nationally um, for a little while. Um, and today, 15 years later, maybe not quite 15, then this still is, a, like with the Aboriginal Interpreter Service, is a solid foundation. It's very easy for me to reach to linguists or for 2M, you know, to have translators and interpreters as as powerful allies and as ambassadors of your organization is, is very powerful, right? So um, there is big rewards, you know, and of course, Gala, some of my best friends are from there. So yeah, but very well worth it. Absolutely. Tia, let's talk about another aspect that most leaders, especially company owners in our industry have to go through. One of the problems with language companies is that we have an issue being able to differentiate from each other. Basically, they, they all look the same. We're all good and we all deliver the needed services. How often do you revisit your organization's core offer and update it? You mentioned you, you have annual strategy meetings, but 
how do you differentiate it? How do you define it to your customers so they can understand it and relate to it directly? Yeah, so as you said, um, the um, we do revisit the organization's core offer in um, you know in the strategy that I mentioned before. We look at the landscape, right? Right. We know where we are different, right? And where we want to stay. So that 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 landscape here in, in, in that region, right? So our differentiators, for example, right, is um, the, the language offering, clearly, you know, as I said before, they include rare and emerging languages. Um, we, I mean, we have clients, even other language service providers, you know, in Europe and the States who come to us for the Pacific Island languages, um, indigenous languages, and, 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 and those other um, emerging or, or, or rare languages. So that's one differentiator. The sectors, we have defined sectors, mining or resources, you know, which includes, of course, renewables, energy, all that. Uh, resources, defense, and medical technology, medtech. There are three, you know. Um, so not not life sciences, right? Medtech. So they're sort of, so we know, okay, this is where is our sweet spot, right? Um, we have the expertise. We can have a lot of competition. We, you know, we're really known. Customer, um, Customer service, you know, um, another differentiator is the customer service. I know everybody says that, right? So that's why I want to define it a little bit more. Yeah, I mentioned our 2M Academy, which actually um, we launched early last year, which has been a success, which is Australia and New Zealand's first free professional development platform for translators and interpreters, right? That's where it started. But we also use that the 2M Academy, if we onboard a new client, for example, let's say in a utility company like in, or you know, like a, a electricity provider or insurance. Our interpreters need to speak their language, the, know the values of the client. We actually bring the client together with, with the interpreters they meet on the Tuam Academy. They meet in, you know, in, in, in webinars. This way, the client really knows that the, we who are the voice of them, be it through the over the phone interpreting, that we really understand that. So again, that's a little bit um, different. Uh, so so they're the, you know, whatever your differentiators are, right? We look at them. We look at the landscape, what is needed, where we don't have to go. But it's the on-the-fly strategy I mentioned before, right? That's important where we sometimes react to a sudden need, right? And our R&D department goes after. I give you a clear example. Concrete examples are... We had two towers in Melbourne, you know, during, um, in, you know, in 2020, July 2020, that suddenly went into lockdown. They were language groups, so a lot of people lived there, didn't have, they had language other than English as a first language, right? And they went into lockdown. And um, suddenly there was this need of short messages that had to be sent out immediately to these language groups. That was done. Somebody did it in government. Use Google Translate anyway. You can imagine it went through the press. <laughs> um, we, um, you know, the usual. This happens in every country, and everybody's up in arms because, as our, you know, industry friend uh, Renato Beninato always says, what does he always say? Nobody eats like toilet paper. Nobody talks about it only if it goes wrong. Nobody talks about toilet paper only when it's missing, right? So obviously, it went wrong, and so so that whole short, ultra fast messaging. In the Australian context, where government requirement is that linguists have to be NATI certified, you know, your National Accreditation Authority for Translators and Interpreters, there we responded, for example, immediately created the 2M on-demand app that's been used then uh, since for those, you know, bypasses the project manager, can be used on your phone, can be downloaded from, you know, from your Apple store. So um, so sometimes we, we react really quickly. 
And um, but otherwise, yeah, we define in the strategy. Are we, you know, other sectors? Is there a new sector? Do we ditch something as well? Because as you know, uh, the last thing you want to go with your differentiator is the quality because, you know, it says nothing. I mean, the language quality, everybody says that. One more thing, Tia. I think you're one of uh, probably the few leaders in our industry who speaks the customer's language. I see you uh, constantly talking to defense delegations, uh, government delegations visiting Europe and so forth. We don't have that type of engagement in our industry. Most of the time we're talking to each other. So do you think there is a problem in us talking outside our industry and, and understanding what our customers' industries are all about? Because that's I don't see enough of that happening. There certainly are, uh, you know, switched on, you know, industry peers here, I think of, you know, who also are very good in this. Yes, of course. Look, it's important um, that the leader of the company in general, you know, is engaged. But um, yeah, I am a, I'm salesperson number one. It's true here at 2M. We have a sales culture, right? All project managers, everyone is in sales, right? And that's, you know, beautifully sort of instilled by our CEO, Helena Rojas. Uh, but um, but yes, I am. I I is is really important. Um, how do we sell? We we go where the client is. Absolutely, as you said, Salton. Mining, right? Um, we do go. We go to APA. You know, we go to IMARC. I mean, these are you know those international mining conferences or in the oil and gas. You know, um, the Australian Petroleum. You know, exploration. Um, uh, you know, association. For example, we go to land forces which is um, the defense, you know, um, for ground, you know, um, forces. Um, so as the name says, we go, um, we go to these conferences, right? We stay in the industry. We learn their language, what contracts are going, who's, who's winning a contract where. It's very important. Um, it took a while to actually get into that um, industry, you know, and uh, you can imagine how, how sort of, especially 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the demography of a mining conference, you know, these, you know, old white men in, in, in the suits, right? <laughs> um, you know, maybe no, you know, middle-aged, you know, but, but yeah, you, you need to, you need to go in there. Um, so we have many sales meetings, actually. Um, you asked about how was it in COVID, uh, during COVID as well? That's actually very good, you know, once we are in front of the client. So I, I might meet people. We, we're there, um, as you can see, also on LinkedIn, in those groups. Once we are in front of the client, once we get the client, we get the chance to present to the client our team. We usually convince and convert, you know, but it's just obviously getting there. So a very disciplined approach as well. One thing is to Absolutely. be around, but very disciplined. I mean, we, we use HubSpot, right, religiously, religious follow-ups, um, you know, and, 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 and getting to these meetings. That's in that space. The other space, Sultan, in Australia is, of course, called the culturally and linguistically diverse communities, right? That's a very big, um, uh, we'll probably talk about this later, but um, uh, same, um, obviously you need to be in that space as well. Absolutely. So let's talk about sales. It's a good segue to the next question. It's a well-known fact that the leader of a company is its best salesperson, and obviously you're a great example of that. How do you sell your company services and core capabilities? Obviously, you're not going to sell translation to people. You're going to sell solving a problem. How has that changed with, the, as you mentioned, digital transformation and, and recently with COVID pushing everyone to do things online? Hmm, I'm trying to, to really get your question here. So how, what, how, how it has changed how we sell? Is, is this what you're asking? Well, I, I'm trying to get a context 
difference in terms of how we used to do sales of translation before versus how we are presenting it now in the context of everything being virtual? Right, of course, yes. I mean, already, you know, the client is so much smarter, you know, so much more informed. I don't know about smarter, but smarter about our industry, for sure, right? They've done, you know, by the time they contact you, unless they just meet me at a conference out of the blue, but by the time they usually contact us, of course, they've done their research, everybody, and this is nothing new, you know? So, um, so you have to demonstrate the value to them. Because again, it's not the translation, you're not showcasing anything. It's not static. You, we do translation, we do interpreting. The, you know, that's not what it is. You need, to, you need to find their pain points and know what is it, you know, and what is it what they are trying to achieve. Even that is nothing new, right? But it really is what I said before. We try, uh, you know, once we, get, once we get into a meeting with them and we really know about the organization, right? We've talked to them, we've gone through this pipeline already at a conference, know what they, you know, which tenders have they won, what are maybe their threats, which markets do they want to enter. Is, you know, like to give you an example, let's say I speak to an Australian exporter who says, what language should we localize in, right? German? No, because the German speaks such good English. There's no point. I'd rather use the budget and, and for Spanish, right? The Spanish don't speak so good English, you know? And um, so then you, you go and you look at different factors. Maybe let's, let's see, let's take an Australian pump manufacturer, right? Maybe who is actually searching for that? Who is actually buying pumps? And then you look at that and you find out that the East European countries are buying pumps from the Germans, right? Because Germans have a very good reputation, yeah, for good pumps. And so they search in German for the pumps. So by getting this Australian company to localize into German, not because the Germans don't understand English, no, because all the East European countries search in English for those pumps. This way, suddenly, the Australian pump also gets a look in, suddenly increases sales of whole new markets in East Europe and wins some German businesses on the way. So then you tell clients, ah, this is another way to look at that. That really adds value. They go like, never thought about this. This makes such sense, right? So this is really important. Same with other things of, um, you know, if you're localizing, should I localize for Finland, you know, or for Germany? Again, this is such a good example because they go, Germans, actually, they, they speak English. Another thought process is, what is their tolerance here, right? What are the tolerance levels of that culture to non-localized content? Germans who speak good English, their tolerance levels are actually very low. If a website is not localized into German, you know, because they're used to dub movies, they're used to local, having, having German, you know, as a localized. Whereas you go to Finland or to some other countries or Iceland, they're used to having the content in English. So their tolerance levels is a lot higher. So, you know, this is a good way to sell. You, you give your clients tools and sales. And then if it makes sense to them, then they buy. Does that make sense to you? A hundred percent. You're shifting gears here, Tia. Uh, your staff love you and, and your organization, from what I know. Uh, what is the secret to that? How do you form that bond and that relationship with your team? Uh, well, I, I don't think I'm the right person to answer this here. Um, <laughs> I mean, you really need to talk to my team. Um, we do have a culture of a 2M family, right? We're a real tribe. You know, even now that we've grown so much that I don't even know everyone in the organization anymore personally. 
But we get together um, from Brisbane. We fly to Melbourne. Um, we obviously haven't had the chance to all come together with COVID internationally because of the travel restrictions. But I really have to shout out to my leadership team here because they are doing this. You know, they're creating the bond. And first of all, number one is um, our CEO, Helena Rojas. Um, she's the one who forms that bond, keeps them engaged, and she's across everything. So it really actually, I mean, it's, it's her doing. Well, uh, that that says a lot about you and your leadership and, and how you have been able to attract such great people to your organization, actually. I think you're an envy to a lot of us in our industry. Well, thanks. I do have the best team. Yes, I agree. Uh, yeah, let's, I don't give let's them talk about, Let's talk about how you do that. So your team, they how engaged are they to you? Do they have a direct line to get in touch with you in case someone from another country, you have international teams, they need to reach to to the CEO. Can they just pick up the phone and call you or send you an email or do they have to go through a chain of command? No, we're on Slack. We use Slack a lot, right? So that's a great tool. Um, we try to reduce emails wherever possible. So um, uh, yes, so we Slack, we've got Slack channels, Slack groups, and people can just Slack me directly. And they do, absolutely. And if I'm, I have it on my phone, I have it on my, you know, and I um that that is the beauty. So yes, I am. There is no line of command. They get directly straight to me. That, that's very interesting. Let's uh, let's talk about something else. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts on uh, the subject of uh, commoditization. Uh, that the services that we are selling, translation, localization, has always been considered an afterthought. But now, uh, is it something that that's being replaced in the community? Do do you see that people uh, think it's something that machines can do, and and how how does that affect the way you conduct your business? Well, look, as my CTO says, you know what's it, you know what is being commoditized here is actually the language data, you know, and those language service providers who understand that, you know, they can open new areas of revenues, you know, uh, via the language data for AI services. So instead of feeling replaceable, right, use the data you gather in translation and localization services to be your own replacement, you know, via the the language uh, data for AI services. So that's already one thing, you know, but that's, you know, that being said, there's a bright future for human expertise, right, And, um, uh, and expert linguists in our industry. The jobs change, you know. Not, you know, but 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 they people are not being replaced, the jobs, you know, that you just need to adapt. So if we go to, you know, I mean, technology is constantly changing, right? The rules of the game in our industry. So the model, you know, whether it is, is really for linguists and LSPs to adapt or to go out of business in general, you know, um, I said years ago, technology is the single most economic driver of the future. So um, we took this very seriously. We established the 2M Lab, which is our R&D department. So, you know, I, I say this, Sultan, because, you know, the whole commoditization, you know, concept with technologies is very closely, you know, connected. Technology has an increasing role, right, and value in our industry, whether it's to save costs or to differentiate from competition. You know, LSPs who are not actively implementing new technology, you know, they're bound to disappear. We know that unless they have a super niche expertise, right? Because otherwise, there's always going to be a competitor who will be able to do the same thing better and cheaper with technology, right? Um, Then again, technology requires investment capacity, you know, which is a challenge for LSPs. 
But um, as my CTO says, you know, to quote um, Thomas Lesbos Munoz, um, he says, the more technology we use, the more human we need to be. And that's really, really important um, because there is, you know, so I, we don't see a replacement at all. We just see this shift, you know, which happens in all the other sectors too. Diesel engineers are retraining here to hydrogen engineers, right? You doctors, right? You know, they, they look and take decisions. Translators look at the output of machine translation and have to, it's expected for, from linguists in a fraction of a second to decide. Empty output useful? Great, use it. Not useful? No. No, no agonizing over it and complaining that that empty output actually made their transla translation worse. No, if it's not useful, you know, but, but that requires switched onness. It requires creativity. You know, and, and we pay for the skill, even if some, if a translator changes nothing from the machine translation, because that translator has the skills and the knowledge to decide this is the correct output, you know. So gone are, of course, what is replaceable, as we know, gone are the days of average mediocre translators, or if you're not adding the value, right? If you're not taking those, these decisions, it's still the creativity we have what AI doesn't have, right? It's not yet replaced. Let's see what happens, right? to take two independent concepts and create a new one. This is something AI is not doing yet. This is what I teach also to students, even in primary school, you know, when I talk to kids. This is how, what, what's going to shape now their immediate. We're here to take decisions. It's not anymore we learn something and no, you, you have the skills, you know the systems, things are automated and you're there and you have and that takes, you know, so gone are the days I go to work, I relax from nine to five because I'm just doing this job because I don't want any headaches. No, you have to really use your brain. But if you do this, uh, it's, you know, uh, neither technology is a threat nor the commoditization, in, in my opinion. Oh, on the subject of technology, Tia, let me ask you one more question. What type of new applications of language, uh, whether it's verbal, like interpreting, or, or whether it's in the form of text, or even probably other means that we haven't thought of, do you foresee that the technology will enable in our industry? For example, last year or the year before, we saw that some of the technologies uh, like GPT-3 and whatever, they, they enabled us to produce text or generate text. They would give it, a, uh, for example, um, a topic to write a press release about something. It, it would write, maybe not as great as humans do. But what does that mean for, mean for our industry? What type of new applications do you foresee that technology will enable us to offer as a value to our customers? Hmm. You know, I, I, I literally, I am so convinced that there are such incredible technology inventions around the corner, which we don't even think of, right? So there are, you know, there could be something next year, which I'm, so, so the answer is, I don't know. I really don't know because there will be things that haven't been invented yet. Sure, we all have this wish list, right, of, um, we, we all know that neural machine translation, you know, is going to, you know, improve a lot, right? Which is, you know, I, I just don't want to, I don't, I don't want to repeat what's already, you know, being discussed and what's already been, you know, what's already on offer. Let's go maybe into, you know, into segment. Are we looking at what? Like, well, what's the wish list here? Maybe that's a good place to start because let's go into interpreting. What do we want? What, what is good for an Indian? What do the clients want? Of course, the clients, by the way, who have now embraced RSI or the multilingual meetings, right? 
the platforms have embraced it because WebEx, you know, has come on board. You know, I'm sure you all know that WebEx has now an RSI function, which is actually, you know, pretty good. You probably know that Zoom has one. The Zoom one didn't have the feature. So interpreters still had to talk to each other via WhatsApp to do the handover because it didn't have a handover button than the RSI platforms in our industry that we know. So, but WebEx is, so yes, they're responding. So then the ultimate is, of course, that you don't need a real simultaneous interpreter behind it. You know, that's the ultimate. I mean, there are many that are really waiting for this. If we stay with this application, for example. And, you know, there's a lot, I think we will see this, you know. So if I pick one, I think we will see, um, we'll, we will see a lot of uh, development going into that in the future. And again, it's not a threat to those talented simultaneous interpreters in our industry which by the way i mean of course you know they have all i mean i studied interpreting so you know i'm very close to them interpreters will be the most interesting people you ever meet in your life right we like the machine translation you know how we translate so much more now you know human translation hasn't gone down has gone up same with simultaneous interpreting right it's because these applications like for example uh you know machine simultaneous interpreting, which I see completely see coming, will be used just like machine translation in settings where it was, where simply no interpreting was done before. And um, I'm actually quite passionate about RSI and simultaneous interpreting in the cult, culturally, linguistically diverse community setting. Uh, it is something that's never, never been used in that setting before. Simultaneous interpreting was always something for your international trade, for your diplomatic, for the big conferences, because it was elite, it was expensive. RSI has changed that, you know, not the interpreter, right, right? But of course, you know, uh, the travel and all the other costs around it. And we are actually quick uh, leaders in democratizing uh, simultaneous interpreting and bringing it and making it possible in the migrant space by for example, you know, using platforms, um, paying for ourselves for the platform, only for the interpreters. You don't have a whole hour, uh, sorry, a whole day. You can have only one hour. So coming back to your question, what tech applications do you see? I see need. I see a place for machine simultaneous interpreting that is not threatening at all the human interpreters we have at the moment, but which will be applied in settings where currently there simply is no interpreting happening at all. Just to name one. That, that's a very interesting thought, Tia. I just uh, I got reminded that uh, a couple of days ago, um, I, I read somewhere that Monash University, in your corner of the world, actually, uh, they were mm -hmm. given um, a $5 million grant to develop something that, uh, in addition to interpreting the content of speech, it, their system will be translating body language and facial expressions, which basically provides cultural cues to prevent a breakdown in communications and ensure smoother cross-cultural dialogue. This, this type of an application uh, coming from academia probably has its its place in, in our industry. Maybe somehow we can uh, couple that with, with our RSI that you just mentioned, right? Like how do we understand body language uh, when, we, when we are doing interpreting, especially, uh, I, I guess virtually it will have it even more, uh, uh, more of a role to play. So yeah, I'm very excited about these things to happen. And, and you're right, uh, we will see many applications that we haven't thought of. It comes down to uh, how do we um, make sure that we stay relevant with these these applications and these technologies. And you're right. The only way we can be using technology is to become uh, more human. 
So uh, with that, what is your message for people listening to you right now? Other leaders and executives in our industry would like to know what is the one thing that you cannot wait to tell them? Oh, what a question. I am not sure if they are, um, if they are really hanging out um, for, um, you know, something for me to tell them. But, you know, maybe, okay, a big heartfelt thank you. You know, there you have it. Thank you to all the leaders and executives in this industry who've given me such generous advice throughout the years, you know, uh, who've helped me to grow my business into the successful international company. And you know who you are, you know, if you're listening from Gala, from Aaliyah, uh, you know, like, well, from the, from, you know, the, from the sector, um, uh, from big, some of the biggest language service uh, providers we have um, in this world to, to smaller ones. Um, generously, they've shared the trade secrets with me, behind the scenes info, invited me to sit in their office, look at their systems, how they do things, you know. And um, I do recommend this to all those new leaders who might be listening to this um, to do the same. It can be a lonely existence, you know, to be the CEO. And, um, and it was really other LSPs, um, the CEOs of other language service providers, who gave me the mentoring I needed early on. Now, today, it's my people, my leadership team, and the, and, and the wider organization. So this is nothing new, you know. I just like to repeat it again. You, your people are your biggest asset. Treat them really well. Tia, we have reached the end of this interview. I would like to give a little bit of shout out to your organization and to yourself for being such a great champion. If our listeners want to get in touch with you regarding any of the topics we discussed today or for any business propositions, what is the best way for them to reach out to you? Look, thanks, uh, Sultan. It's a pleasure. And by the way, I'm very happy you mentioned Monash uh, University in Melbourne. Uh, indeed, they do great thing. As a matter of fact, just now, um, as we speak, um, uh, parts of our R&D team and um, are actually meeting with Monash because they're part of all this R&D that's happening there. Um, many of our best people are all coming from Monash University, so a big shout out to them. Um, but of course, we have other great, uh, you know, universities in, in Australia. How to find us? 2M, that's number 2, mformary.com.au, obviously our website. But find me on LinkedIn um, and send me a message um, uh, if you're connected. If you're not connected, yes, connect to me. Um, you can reach us, of course, by email uh, to team at 2m.com.au or directly, obviously, to my, to, to my email, which is uh, my name, Tia, without an H, um, dot uh, at 2m.com.au. So I'd love to hear. And as you heard before, giving back to the industry is really important to me because um, I've, I got so much from this industry and, uh, and, and, and from you as well, Sultan, you know. So thank you very much for this. Absolutely. That was a fascinating and fun conversation, Tia. You are always an inspiration for me and for so many people in our industry. I'm sure people listening to us today have learned at least one thing that they can apply to their life or work and improve how they, they do things. I hope we can do this again and you can share your wisdom with us on another topic. With that, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Leading and managing are two different but related things, and as an owner or leader of a translation company with presence in multiple jurisdictions, you need to be forward-thinking like Tia. The most natural evolution of expanding an organization in the language space is to branch out geographically for such advantages as time zone, extension of operations, cultural diversity, local market presence, foreign skills access, and much more. Tia clearly laid out how complex and difficult it is to define roles and responsibilities in such a structure 
I think it comes down to taking your corporate vision and mission and identifying how every team and individual across different locations add value, reducing overlap and increasing complementing strengths. It is a true leadership challenge to build a well-functioning multi-jurisdictional language operation. Tia also pointed out that you are not a true leader until you train another leader. This will be absolutely critical in scenarios where every geolocation operates in harmony and sync with the core operations. These are the leaders that lead and manage people in their locations according to local customs, traditions, cultural and business norms as well as regulations that may not resonate or be known to central leadership. It is an interesting and exciting time for our industry and language services companies that are expanding geographically as they have their work cut out for them. It is an interesting and exciting time for our industry and language services companies that are expanding geographically have their work cut out for them along with the rewards that come with it. That was my conversation with Tia. I'm hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did talking to her. She's very strategic minded and always works with the big picture. As I said, she is a true inspiration and we are lucky to have leaders like Tia in our industry. Don't forget to subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or your platform of choice. Give us a thumbs up or five star rating wherever you're listening. It is great for our ratings. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode. 